Welcome to the Reminger Report podcast on emerging technologies. Reminger Co. LPA is a full-service law firm with over 150 lawyers spread across 14 offices and serving states throughout the Midwest. My name is Zach Pyers, and I'm a partner in Reminger's Columbus, Ohio office. And I'm Kenton Steele, an associate in Reminger's Columbus office. This podcast on emerging technologies will examine how changes in technology and business models affect our daily lives and how the law is adapting to respond to these changes. Today, we're going to be the first of a two-part series where we sit down with Ryan McManus, the founder and CEO of Share Mobility, located here in Columbus, Ohio. During this first part of our series, we're going to be discussing shared mobility's future, its creation, and development. Ryan, if you could, could you just tell us a little bit, our audience, a little bit about yourself um, and how long you've kind of been working in the startup space? Well, Zach, thanks for having me on the podcast today. You know, I've been working in innovation for maybe the last decade, and my career started in corporate innovation where I got to work inside of you know larger companies and help them diversify, create new lines of business. Um, started my first company in 2014. And then this company started in 2016, which um, is now Share Mobility. We're based here in Columbus, Ohio, and we're trying to create equitable access through mobility as a service. Now... I- you talk about mobility as a service. One of the things I've, uh, I'm kind of interested in is how did you decide to kind of get into the mobility market just in general? Well, I'm not sure I would advise others to go about starting a company this way, but, you know, there's kind of generally two types of companies. There's company-first companies and product-first companies. And a product-first company is like you're an inventor. I built a widget. I'm going to create that and bring it to market. Well, we were a company-first company where in 2016, we said, we're going to develop technology for a world where everyone is a passenger. And we were thinking about how autonomous vehicles were going to be a part of that future. And we were going to build apps for the inside of cars. So the only real decision when we, ma- we made when we founded the company was, we're going to look at how to affect the change of the automotive, in- automotive industry and kind of address the corporate innovation challenges that we saw from major automakers. I believe this is currently in progress and it's accelerating its pace, but the automotive industry is in a glide path. The way they sell cars today is most likely not the way they're going to be selling cars in a decade. And it was that original idea about autonomous vehicles that got Jaguar Land Rover to give me a concept investment. And so I actually had investment before we incorporated this business. Um, it was a pure idea, and I was given six months and a very small amount of funding to figure out what is the biggest opportunity in the automotive industry that we could win in in Columbus, Ohio. And that's how I found my way to B2B mobility as a service. How did you Tell me a little bit about that process, if you would, just about kind of landing that money from Land Rover Jaguar, how did you, I mean, how did you find that opportunity and kind of how did that opportunity, how did you seize it for lack of a better term? You know, it's really serendipitous. I knew someone in Portland that knew someone that was managing the program and that's how I got awareness of the program. Otherwise I wouldn't have known um, 
we were able to get an application in on the very final day that they were accepting them. And, you know, I think that who you know matters a whole lot. And the fact that I had my friend Rob be able to make the introduction and it, I think it got our application on the top of the pile. And then I think they made a bet on us at Jaguar Land Rover. And I think their bet was we've got six other companies or maybe five other companies that all have a product and they know what they're building. And we have one team that's starting from scratch and let's see how they do. Um, I think we made the most out of an uh, accelerator program and we really, we were able to learn a whole lot through that program that we wouldn't have otherwise had. So I think for founders that might be first time founders, they don't have the track record of starting and selling a company and they want to go after a really big market or they have a really big vision. I think incubators and accelerators are very good starting points. They will take chances on somebody that's a first timer. They'll give you a very small amount of money and it puts the crunch on because you have to make progress in three months or six months. And we did the first six months with Jaguar Land Rover. We came out of the program, kind of had some ideas on what we wanted to do, but it took us another six months and we got into a second accelerator. And we did that here in Columbus. It was the Smart City Accelerator that was funded by NCT Ventures and AEP. And through that program, we really formalized what became Share Mobility. That's when we got our first vans and started doing transportation services. Tell me a little bit about the transition that you're just describing when you when you said that you know share mobility got their first got its first vans and kind of transitioned a little bit into more of the mobility space kind of a way. How did that how did that progression happen? I mean, I know you, you described getting from one accelerator to the other, but was there an aha moment for you or others at share mobility that said, okay, now we're gonna we're gonna transition, we're gonna look in this area? I always said the word platform. From the beginning of the origin of the company, we talked about we're going to build a platform. And my background in B2B led me to go and say, how do I take this platform concept and take it into businesses? And so I got to meet with some very large senior health providers, some very large employers, and different groups that were running their own internal transportation services. They thought they wanted to do some things like Uber they needed it to be really trusted, but consistently, nobody wanted to run the service. So my first customers said to me, we'll be your customer if you're everything. We won't buy software and keep running the vans. This, you're not going to win a deal there. And so we had to say, all right, we're willing to take the whole project. We're going to do a turnkey solution where you contract with us, we provide the vehicles, the drivers, the insurance, and the technology. And from a you know MVP product development standpoint, which is very common in tech, where you build something very, very minimal, we had very little software in the beginning. You know, very, very little. It just, just had enough for the rider and a little bit for the driver and created some efficient routes. But it was by no means a software package that you could hand to somebody else. And so by building... A holistic solution that went out and solved the problem we didn't need to have everything in place and I, I probably would have needed to raise several million dollars more in the first year of the company to be able to 
build an entire software product before I had revenue. And coming out of, you know, being in Columbus, Ohio, a lot of the expectations on entrepreneurs is based on revenue. And I don't think that's a bad thing. It means that we're building good businesses today, not we're building things in hope of a big business in the future. But um, we had to be able to show revenue early on and we had to prove a model that others didn't believe in. Um, everybody was saying like, we wanted to be like Uber and we want the ease of Uber. We want it to be instant. But Uber went public and they were losing money on every ride. And so I knew from the operator's perspective that that was not gonna be sustainable. And we decided instead of taking no control over the vehicle, like Uber does, and say the drivers are independent, we're going to do the exact opposite, and we're going to take full control over the fleet. We're going to have more data than anybody else. We're going to provide the safest, most trusted transportation service, and we're going to focus on solving problems, not just selling software. Because when you build software, you, you have to build for kind of a repeatable, consistent use case. And if you have to build that software in a vacuum before you can get it to market where people try it and they give you feedback, then you've got to build a whole lot before it's ready. And so our approach allowed us to get started, learn, and iteratively build the different parts of the technology we needed to get to the next phase. So for example, in 2018, we tripled our revenue in a 60-day period and our volume of dispatchers and calls went through the roof. We spent the next three months building out new capabilities for our dispatchers and routing. And we today, we do 10 times as many rides as we did then, and we have the same amount of dispatchers. And so we were able to create efficiencies and scale as we grew. But we wouldn't have known what to build for the operators and the dispatchers had we not been the operator. It's, it's really one of our competitive advantages. Now, it's interesting. It, it, as you talk about the progression of the of of share mobility, because at least from my understanding of the company, and please tell me if I'm wrong, but you guys operate as a mobility as a service company, and you also have a, a kind of another arm, software as a service. But it sounds to me that really the software was built. I'm not saying the software was built, but in its full capacity, the way it's kind of fully been flushed out. The only reason you've been able to do that is because you started more as a mobility as a as a service company first. Right. Okay. The term mobility as a service is modeled after software as a service. And so just like you don't buy software, you don't buy mobility, you subscribe to it. So sure. that's why we call it mobility as a service. We have the two lines of business where some companies come in and they buy mobility service in units of hours. And then we have other organizations that are cities or transit agencies or private operators that use our software to run their own service. What those companies that are on our platform get the benefit of is now they can be our third-party operator in their city. So we're in five states where we have third-party operators that are professional fleets with W-2 drivers that can meet the same service level expectations that we have with our corporate contracts but we're able to plug them in to new opportunities that they otherwise wouldn't be aware of. And so we can bring to an operator the ability to serve an enterprise company or a rural manufacturer and bring them opportunities they wouldn't otherwise have. Now, 
I'm going to kind of shift gears, if, if you don't mind, before I shift back. But you kind of mentioned one of this. And, and I know you and I were talking before we started recording this about how you've covered some of these kind of mobility topics on, on your own podcast. And so uh, for those of those listeners who don't know, I, I would at least like to plug your podcast. That, Appreciate it. <laughs> that com- it's called the Commute Podcast. Is that correct? Yeah, it's the nerdiest of transit and mobility things you could imagine. It's uh, like... 45-minute episodes. I've done 25 of them. And I interview people working on transportation around the world. And we've done everything from Hyperloop to e-bikes. And it's very self-serving. Is I I interview people <laughs> I want to meet and get to learn from them. And the amount of insights I've had, it's not just the conversations that are recorded. It's the things that happen before and after that are so insightful. And I, I became so much smarter about transportation by having access to all of these people. So you can find us on all the different YouTube, iTunes, Spotify. Well, I haven't listened to all your podcasts, but I will tell you that I did listen to both the e-bikes one and the Hyperloop one, as well as a couple of the others. And I mean, the Hyperloop, now we're totally off topic, but the Hyperloop has always fascinated me simply because um, the idea that me living here in Columbus, Ohio, may someday commute to an office in Chicago in roughly the same time that it takes me to get to my downtown office in Columbus is kind of interesting to me. Could you imagine the Geno's pizza showing up <laughs> hot and ready? Uh, I on know. The Hyperloop? I know. You know, and the other thing that I've, I've been thinking about, especially as the pandemic has gone on and traffic has declined too, is that I, I, I'm only six miles from the office. I'm really not that far from where I live. And there's a bike path that leads directly from my, almost directly from my house to the office. And I've oftentimes thought about, you know, is it feasible for me to commute that distance? And I had a friend who, when we were back in law school, who actually commuted that distance for an entire summer while we were studying for the bar exam. And he used it as a stress reliever and a way to get exercise in an already busy schedule. And I've thought to myself, you know, is it feasible? And so some of the the episodes that you're talking or that you've covered – I think are incredibly practical, even for people like me who are thinking, how is this going to impact my life, you know, moving forward? Totally. Um, so I, I let I, me I, share I, my personal experience there. So yeah. 45 days ago, I sold my car. My wife and I went to a, become a one car household. I now daily ride my bike to the bus, take the bus. I commute from north side of Columbus to near the airport every day. How, let me let me just ask you personally, how is that? I mean, how has that changed? I mean, how has it changed your daily life or how has it impacted you? So the thing my wife and I are measuring is a helpfulness score. So like almost on a daily basis, if there's a decision related to travel, we kind of decide whether I'm being helpful or not by not having a car. And we've actually found that there hasn't been a single time where we haven't been able to accommodate taking the kids to activities or she has something or I have something and we've been able to make it work. Um, the other things we're measuring are around time spent and then monetary savings. The monetary savings are, I mean, nice, you know, four or 500 bucks a month. I think for me, the best part is that it's a really great way to start the day. I love getting on the bike and having a little bit of time out in the fresh morning air there's something cool about standing on the side of the road waiting for the bus. You know, it feels like you're in a bigger city. And I've gotten to see the city from a different viewpoint from taking the bus. I've also gathered a lot of ideas that we're implementing into 
a new membership program that's going to incorporate the bus. So I'm like a Jim Carrey of entrepreneurship <laughs> where like I'm a method uh, entrepreneur. And I, I dive right in and I try to be an active participant in the things that we're doing. But I don't see us going back to having a second car. Yeah. I And I'm, I've, I have had this conversation, I think, with a lot of people in various capacities just because of the, pot, the podcast and the books that the book Kent and I've written and, and various people we've talked to in the industries. But I think that there's going to be a lot of families that are going to be thinking or considering that in a much shorter time frame that I think that other people really recognize. And, and, and you know, and it's funny too, because for a long period of time, I, when I grew up, my family was a one car family. And my father walked to work, even though I was from a small town in northeastern Ohio. He spent he spent 28 years walking to and from work because he worked in a in a building that was really only four or five blocks away from our house. And so it, I mean, he would walk, he would come home for lunch, and then he would you know walk back, and he would walk back at. And I remember walking to meet him when he would walk home from work. And that concept is has for a long period of time was so foreign that we could ever reach a point where like a family would ever need a one car again, just because people were so busy. Uh-huh. But I, it, it does make me wonder whether we're rapidly approaching that period again. And I've heard more and more stories like yours where people have made the decision, whether they live close to downtown or they live close to work. Um, I know we have, we have people in our office who live close to the office and whose cars have been parked for weeks on end mm-hmm. because they're able to walk to and from work. And that's not a totally abnormal thing. Sometimes their cars are in our parking garage, and I don't know if they're here or at home because their home is so close, they just leave their car in our parking garage. I think we're on an inevitable path of families going from two cars to one, and not from an economic reason, but from like a quality of life, lifestyle, where you want to live and what you really need to have. If the economy were to have a downturn I think you'll find a lot of people look to get the equity cash they have, their personal wealth. Like Other than home equity, car equity is probably the largest single source of pretty much liquid capital that somebody could get to if they were in a, in a pinch, right? And so I think you could see a, uh, especially with used car v- values being at a all-time high, I think you could see a lot of people look to do it to get the cash they have. And if I were in control of the automotive industry, I would say this is a perfect time to be moving somebody into a subscription model. Let's not lose them forever because they want to sell their car. Let's give them the capital they have back and move them into a subscription model. But they're not going to do that. Now, I have seen uh, some of the subscription models being offered by various companies. Yeah. Um, Jermaine did it here in town. You yeah, could go I saw, to get a yeah, different I, car all the time. I saw that, and I've seen some of the manufacturers start to introduce a couple of them. But they've been relatively limited, and frankly, I don't know how successful they have been or haven't been at this juncture. But it is interesting that – I mean it is interesting that that – I mean is a business model that may become more relevant as time goes on. Yeah, I know Volvo, Porsche, GM, they all have them um, – they didn't do so well in the subscription model because they were extremely expensive. Yeah. You were paying a lot more to have the flexibility to swap a car and people really didn't do it. I think it comes back to data and I'd like your insights here. So you know how we don't own our phones anymore, right? <laughs> yes. And it's for what reason? Uh, largely because of the cash outlay, I think. 
I actually think it's about data ownership. Hmm. Okay. So the carriers and Apple have very clear ownership about the data on a device that they own that you subscribe to. Sure. And so if you look at the phone plan you have with your carrier, you'll notice that you don't actually own this device. At the end of your two years, you have to give it back or there's a huge fee at the end. Sure. I think the same thing happens in the automotive industry around connected card data. So it's projected that the value of the connected card data could exceed the value of the car itself, right? And so if you want to make sure that you can monetize the data, you need to have very clear ownership of the asset that produces the data. And by moving the automotive industry into a subscription model, it's very clear that the user driver doesn't own the data that the organization does. And I think that's why the automotive industry should be scared of the capabilities of an Amazon or an Apple or the Samsung to come in and say, old model out, new model in, you don't buy these, you subscribe to them. And you're going to buy apps and everything you stream makes money for the company that owns the asset. That's interesting. That's interesting, especially as we've heard that some of these companies that you just mentioned are exploring or have been exploring for a number of times an entrance into the automotive industry. Yeah. yeah. And why would why would Amazon buy 200,000 SUVs in 2019? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it certainly it certainly raises that. I mean, it certainly raises the question. I mean, the other thing that I you talk about the subscription services. Um, you know, one of the other things that I have heard about and that talking, and it's not the same context, but I've also heard about the automotive industry introducing some of their self driving platforms in a more subscription service where you would have vehicles that you may own, but you would turn certain features on and off still providing those subscription services, but still paying a monthly subscription service essentially for that feature. Yes, yeah, somebody did that in the last two weeks where you would you'd pay by the mile whenever you activated your autonomous vehicle capability. Yeah. Kind of, kind of interesting, right? Where they can, I mean, Tesla's doing this now. Basically, every car is the same and it's software variations that give you access to more range and uh, different features, and they can just turn them on and turn them off. And the idea is that the automakers through over-the-air updates can ship the same car to everybody, but through software create high-level, low-level. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, I also think it creates a, an ongoing revenue stream for the car companies. But I think it go, it, I, the reason I'm bringing this up and I'm kind of touching on it and thinking about it is your concept as it relates to the data ownership. So if you if you if the feature is more of a subscription, I, you know the question becomes who owns that data in that subscription model. Even if I own the car, I may not own that feature. Mm-hmm. Then that data is being collected by you know the, the automobile manufacturer. Then they may own that data. And so I, I think yeah. it's a very real. I mean, I think it's a very interesting question um, as we kind of move forward and, and the industry shifts so much. Shifting back, but also still talking about shifting. One of the questions that I wanted to talk to you about is, you know, as far as mobility companies, the pandemic this last year, I know, has altered and or just changed the way a lot of them have have looked at stuff and done business. And frankly, it was just tough for a lot of mobility companies. Now, I'm I'm encouraged by the fact that I think we're in the, at least here in the United States, slowly coming out on the other side of this. What do you see, uh, kind of areas for growth for 
for mobility companies and for share mobility kind of as we come out of this pandemic? What kind of shifts did you see during the pandemic that, that you know, may change the way share mobility is doing business or looking at things? So for us, it was really clarifying of the mission. Because when a lot of people stop going to work, you realize that those people probably weren't the customers to begin with. And taking an individual out of a car they drive doesn't feed our mission as much as giving transportation to somebody that doesn't have it. And through the pandemic, those who needed it needed it even more, our essential workers or people working out in rural areas. For us, it's highlighted a growing population of people that are either by choice, economics, age, or physical disability, they're always passengers. And our team um, kind of doubled down on focusing on those people through through the pandemic. And, you know, I think in the next 60 days, we're going to be back to pre, pre above where we were before the pandemic. But the customers and the use cases are... Um, more impactful, I think, than, than they were maybe before it. That's going to conclude our first part of the series with Ryan McManus, founder and CEO of Share Mobility. Join us next time where he discusses the future of mobility and ride sharing. Mm-hmm.